The text we're going to look at uh, for the sermon today is Psalm 32. So I invite you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 32 in your Bibles. While you're turning there, just as an overview, there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. This extensive book in the middle of our Bibles is a a collection of of praises from God-fearing Israelites who were trusting God and, and taking refuge in him. And half of these praises, half of these psalms, were written by King David, the one who is described in Scripture as being a man after God's heart. And God himself is the one who said that about David. And by the grace of God and the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, well, the overall pattern and direction of David's life was marked by humble submission and service to God. David had an abiding trust in God and sought to honor him at all times. He was a sinner like the rest of us, and he rightly recognized his own sinfulness and thus his continual need for God's grace and mercy. He sought to keep his way pure by living according to God's word. However, there, was still, there were still times when David, the man after God's heart, succumbed to the enticement of his own sinful desires and sinned against God. And this could be said of everyone who has been born from above, right? This could be said of every genuine believer. By God's grace, the the enslaving power of sin over our lives is broken, and, and we now have the desire to live for his glory. And we're enabled by him to do so. And we see evidence in our lives of his transformative work in our hearts. However, we are also continually aware of the fact that sin still remains within us. And it pulls at our hearts so that we might be enticed to rebel against God, to disobey, to dishonor him. In the case of King David, the account of his greatest sin and thus the lowest point in his life, as far as his relationship with God was concerned, that's recorded in Scripture for all of us to see in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David had chosen to remain home from the battlefield one spring while his men went off to fight. And late one afternoon, after he had been lounging around, he went on a stroll, or went for a stroll on his palace roof, and, and he was caught off guard when he happened to see a beautiful woman bathing. And rather than look away, he succumbed to the lust of his eyes, and he, he determined in his heart that he must have this woman, Bathsheba, even though she was married. She was the wife of Uriah, one of his fighting men, one of his mighty men. But his sinful desire had taken hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He sent for her, she came to him, he lay with her, and then she went home. 
It was just one night. One night. And no one else knew about it except for some of David's servants. However, Bathsheba had become pregnant. And she sent word to David when she realized it. And David, now out of desperation to keep his adulterous act hidden, had his army commander send Uriah to him under the pretense that he wanted to get a report of how the war was going. And David, when Uriah came, he encouraged Uriah to spend the night at home and to enjoy his wife before returning to the battlefield. Uriah, being an honorable man, refused to take such enjoyment while his commander and the rest of the men were still out in the field. And David then tried another approach the following nights. He had Uriah dine with him and got him drunk, hoping that it would lead Uriah to forget his convictions, stumble home, and be with his wife. Well, that plan failed too. Uriah remained at the palace and did not go to his own house. And David, well, then he sent Uriah back to the battlefield and he sent a letter to the commander which he had Uriah carry. And it directed the commander to put Uriah in the hardest part of the fighting and then to draw back from him so that he would be killed. The order was carried out and the commander sent word to David after Uriah was killed. Bathsheba mourned and then David brought her to his house and she became his wife and, and then she gave birth to the child. It appeared that David's plan worked and that his great sin would remain a secret. In the eyes of the people, it had appeared that he had actually done an honorable thing in marrying and caring for the widow of one of his men who had fallen in battle. However, none of this was hidden from God. Proverbs 5.21 says, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David over his sin and thus expose it. And David got called out. And in response, he did not try to deny or rationalize the evil that he had done. He did not try to discredit or try to silence the messenger. Instead, he received the stinging rebuke and confessed that he had sinned against God. And he accepted the grave consequences that God would bring upon him because of his actions. Nonetheless, in response to his confession, David was told, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David deserved death, which would have been just. But instead, God graciously chose to show him mercy. David wrote a psalm in which he gave full expression to his sorrowful confession and genuine repentance before God. That is Psalm 51, which we heard read at the beginning of service. And in this psalm, not only did David confess his sin, 
cry out for mercy and plead that God would graciously purify, renew, sustain, and restore him, he also made a commitment. In verses 12 to 13 of that psalm, he wrote the following, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It seems that one way David made good on this commitment to teach fellow transgressors God's ways was by writing Psalm 32. In this psalm, David instructs the people of God to be honest about their sin and willingly confess it to God so that they might personally experience the happiness and security of God's mercy and steadfast love. As one commentator states, it is a fundamental psalm illustrating powerfully the prerequisite of spiritual health, namely, a self-conscious awareness of one's sinful life and of the necessity of acting upon that awareness in confession before God. David begins Psalm 32 by speaking of the happiness of those who receive God's forgiveness for sin they have committed against him. Let's read verses 1 and 2. David wrote, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. All people are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty of disobeying God's commandments and turning aside from doing what is right and good. And thus we are guilty in his sight and deserving of death. The only possibility of happiness for us is if God shows us mercy and graciously removes our guilt and forgives our sin. And God does so for those who are honest about their sin, who are genuinely sorrowful over it, and who honestly confess it to him. He forgives their transgression. That is, he, he lifts the great burden of their guilt off of them. He covers their sin. That is, he, he removes from his sight the offense against him and refuses to consider it any further in judgment. In other words, it is, it is stricken from the record. He counts no iniquity against those who confess their sin to him, come to him in repentance. He counts no iniquity against them. That is, he no longer holds their sin against them, and he considers the matter settled. It is happiness for any sinner to find such incredible mercy that they do not deserve. And it is available only to those 
who are honest before God about their sin and demonstrate that by genuine confession. David then shares from his his personal experience. He demonstrates, or he shares from his personal experience what, what happens when there is deceit within us regarding our sin. That is, when we refuse to confess it to God. We refuse to come clean. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Well, for nearly a whole year, nearly a whole year, David had kept silent about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his order for her husband Uriah to be abandoned in battle so that he might be killed and thus keep David's sin from being discovered. He kept quiet about it. He kept it a secret. And here, David explains what it was like for him during that time. Although outwardly he saved face, inwardly he was deeply troubled. Living with guilt and a stifled conscience and bottling up one's evil and remaining silent about it results in the deterioration of the soul. One commentator wrote, David's failure to confess his sins led to a debilitating and draining weakness. He was also emotionally distraught because of he, he spoke of his groaning all day long. His soul was aching, racked with pain, agonizing, depressed, and downcast. His zest for life was slowly being drained away. In other words... When you choose to keep silent about your sin, you're going to feel it. You might be able to keep up or keep the matter well hidden from others, even for a long time. You might be able to give others the impression that you're being faithful to the Lord and walking in a manner worthy of him. But that unconfessed sin and your lack of repentance will have a debilitating effect on your spirit. David rightly recognized that the the inner turmoil he had experienced was, well, it was not merely the natural outworking of his own repressed guilt, not just some natural side effect. It was divine discipline. In verse 4, he says of God, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God disciplines those whom he loves. Those whom he has sovereignly chosen for salvation and upon whom his favor rests, he disciplines them for their good. If you are truly his, he will treat you as a son and he will discipline you for your good so that you may share in his holiness. If you are not truly his, then he will harden your heart and give you over to your sin. And although your conscience 
will testify to the fact that your self-serving way of life dishonors God and is worthy of condemnation, you will nonetheless suppress that knowledge, make excuses, and continue in your rebellion against God's authority over your life. Illegitimate child, not a true child of God, but the one who truly is his, he disciplines, he goes after, he pursues. For those who truly belong to God, God will lovingly and faithfully discipline us as needed so that we will not be content to remain in blatant sin, but will come to confess it and forsake it. This is the effectual saving grace of God at work in our lives. If it's worthless grace if it doesn't transform you, if it doesn't change you. The grace of God that we read of in Scripture that comes through Jesus Christ upon all who believe, that grace changes you. That grace is powerful. It's effectual. It trains us, as Paul wrote to Titus, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not perfect, right? Not perfection, but the direction of our life moves towards increasing holiness. So the Lord's hand was heavy upon David. And David could find no release from the agony of his guilt for quite some time, nearly a year, because he remained silent before God concerning his sin. It did not go well with him. Then the time came when the cords of pride and fear that had constrained David's lips for so long finally snapped, and he confessed his sin to God. Verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you remember when that moment came? What brought it about? David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. He was confronted. God sent Nathan to David to expose his hypocrisy and guilt. And through Nathan, God announced to David his knowledge of the sin that David had kept secret. And he declared to David the severe consequences that he was going to bring into David's life for despising him as he did. It took David being confronted and called out for him to finally come clean and confess his sin before God. He didn't do it earlier on his own initiative. But what matters is that he chose to do what was right when he was confronted and called out. He can't go back. Right? He can't, no do-overs. But in that moment, he had a choice. And he chose to do what was right when he was confronted. He could have denied it. He did not. He could have rationalized it, but he did not. He could have tried to silence or discredit the messenger, but he did not. He was done with faking it, he was done with the secrecy. He was done with the denial. He was done with the hypocrisy. He was done with hiding his sin. 
He humbly received the rebuke and confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice in verse 5 that David does not speak of mistakes, shortcomings, or weaknesses. Rather, he speaks of his sin, his iniquity, and his transgressions. He, he calls it what it is. And so must we if we are to make helpful progress in dealing with our sin. Not a shortcoming, not a weakness, not a mistake, but sin against God. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What's the assumption? We're all sinners. No perfect people out there. Everyone is a sinner. The question is, what do we do? Do we live in it? Do we embrace it? Do we love it? Well, for the, for the Christian, do we try to hide it? Or do we come clean and confess it? If we confess and forsake our sin, we will obtain mercy. Although David would have, have to deal with severe, lifelong consequences as a result of his sinful actions, those don't just disappear. Although he, he would have to deal with that, he nonetheless still obtained mercy from God. He finally for, uh, confessed and God forgave. The crushing weight of guilt that had pinned him down was lifted. That was David's personal experience, and he wanted to share what he learned from it with the rest of God's people so that they might be honest with God about their sin and confess it to him so that they too might experience the sweet relief that is found in his mercy and forgiveness. No one is deserving of it. But David wants to tell people what it takes to experience it. Come clean, be honest about your sin before God, confess it, forsake it. You will find mercy. In verse 6, David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The point here is, don't delay in confessing your sin to God. Don't delay. Because it will only get worse when you remain silent and try to hide it or ignore it as if God does not know. Refusing to confess known sin will burden you with guilt, dull your conscience, and lead to more sin, all of which hinders your fellowship with God. The longer you delay, the greater the relational distance there will be between you and God, and you will downplay, excuse, or ignore your sin all the more. The one who conceals or clings to his or her sin is, is setting himself up to be overtaken and overwhelmed by its consequences. However, those who deal honestly with their sin and with a penitent heart confess it to God, will obtain mercy, and will be secure. 
And such security is described by David on a personal level in verse 7. What does he say? He says to God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What was David hidden from? What was he preserved from? What was he delivered from? He was not exempt from facing the earthly consequences of his sin that God would truly bring upon him. However, after confessing his sin to God, he was no longer experiencing divine chastening. The Lord's hand was no longer heavy on him. He had been afflicted by God because of his concealed sin, but now through his confession, he was granted relief. His days had been filled with his own groaning, but now he was surrounded by shouts or songs of deliverance. So what about you? Would you, would you take the groaning or the singing? What sounds better? We know the way. Be honest with our, before God about our sin. Confess it. We'll find mercy and be surrounded with songs of deliverance. Our groaning will end. The burden will be lifted. Grace, mercy. Instead of turning from God and hiding your sins so that far greater trouble comes upon you, turn to God and confess your sins so that you may receive mercy and have security. God is the only true hiding place. In verse 8, we have God's reply to David. Our English language obscures the fact that the second person pronouns in this verse, they're all singular. They're all singular. The you, and it's four times it appears in that, it's, all, it's singular. And the second person imperatives, commands, in verses 9 and 11, well, they're plural. There's a difference. Verse 8 is different. It is God who speaks to David in verse 8. David speaks directly to his readers in verses 9 through 11, but God is the one speaking to David in verse 8, and he says the following. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In the very next psalm, in Psalm 33, we find the following statement. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death. It's a good thing with his, for his eye to be upon those who are his. And David said of God in Psalm 25, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Such statements are consistent with the reply of God in Psalm 32, verse 8, right here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The discipline of God is meant to drive his children off of the destructive path of sin and back onto the way of holiness so that he may continue to instruct us in what is right and good and so lead us onward to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives for our joy 
and for his glory. And as a loving father, God keeps his eye on us for our good. He watches out for us, keeps an eye on us for our good, protects us but from ourselves, from our own folly. He is faithful to discipline us when we stray into sin. And he is faithful to forgive us when we confess and repent of our sin. Guaranteed. In light of this, David gives his direct exhortation to us. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule, without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And there more specifically would be, or it will not come to you. In other words, to put it bluntly, don't be stubborn and stupid. Like a horse or a mule, don't persist in your sin. Don't ignore it or try to hide it, make light of it or excuse it. Don't wait around to receive the rod of God's discipline. Do you want that? When you sin against God, repent and confess it to him willingly and without delay so that his his chastening is not required. One commentator put it this way, if we do not submit to the Lord, we will be controlled by bit and bridle. If the people of God act as disobedient children, he will use severe means to get their attention and gain control. David issues then a helpful reminder in verse 10. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We who trust in the Lord still sin, but his steadfast love surrounds us so that our sorrows don't endlessly multiply like they do in the lives of those who do not trust in him and reject his authority. His steadfast love surrounds us. We who trust in the Lord have the assurance that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That also means he will never leave us in our sin, forsake us in our sin. We have the assurance that that he will be faithful to discipline us so that we don't continue in sin, but are led to confess it and receive his forgiveness. We have the assurance that his mercy towards us is inexhaustible. It will never end. It is new every morning. And that we have the assurance that he who justifies us by his grace, well, he will by his grace glorify us as well. The knowledge of God's steadfast love is all the motivation we need to run to him and confess our sin rather than to run away from him and cover it. He is merciful, he is gracious, and he is faithful to forgive when we repent and confess our sins to him. That should compel us to just run to him whenever we sin. He's faithful to forgive us. And he can abundantly pardon guilty sinners 
who are not worthy of his mercy and grace because why? Why can he do that? Why is that not a miscarriage of justice? He can pardon guilty sinners like us when we come in repentance and faith and confess it to him because his son, Jesus Christ, the only one who is truly worthy, who is perfectly righteous and without sin, came into the world as a man and absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve by dying in our place for our sins. God raised him from the dead, vindicating him as the Holy One, whose sacrifice for sin was perfect and complete and made full atonement for those who trust in the Lord. Justice was ultimately served through the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God. So God's justice is not compromised when he forgives wretched sinners who repent and cry out to him for mercy and trust in him alone for salvation. We don't want justice. If God gave us all justice, we would all perish. But because of Jesus, we can have mercy. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that if we confess our sins, God is, he is faithful and just faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's because of Jesus that those who trust in the Lord are surrounded by the steadfast love of God and ultimately receive mercy rather than condemnation. Do you deserve condemnation? You do. We all do. But because Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for us, laid down his life for the sins of his people, because of that, the steadfast love of God surrounds us, and we receive mercy rather than condemnation. And receive it how? As we repent, we come to him in faith, we confess our sin to him, and he forgives. So in light of the goodness and loving kindness of God toward those who believe, David exhorts us in verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those who confess and forsake their sin and obtain mercy from God and are forgiven, have the greatest reason to rejoice and be glad. Worship is the only fitting response. And when we say worship, surely it means singing, but it also means what? Offering up our lives as, as a living sacrifice to be set apart for God to live for his glory. It's the only fitting response. So as we're told in verse 11, may, may we continually lift up our voices and sing God's praises in order to express the gratitude in our hearts for his undeserved kindness toward us. We, 
We do that every Sunday, don't we? Now for you, those of you who have held back from confessing your sin to God, well, open your mouth now to offer up your prayer to him while he may be found. While he's still near. Do not harden your heart towards him. Do not resist his, his word which you've heard today. Acknowledge your sin to God. Confess it. Forsake it. Surrender your life to Christ so that you may also obtain mercy. May we all trust in him, live for his glory, sing his praises, and, and rest in his grace. One final word of application. This is the title of the sermon, is Confessing Sin. Surprise. Psalm 32, Confessing Sin. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And how do we get it, right? We're honest with God about our sin. We confess our sin to him. Think of confessing sin as a spiritual discipline. We usually refer to prayer as the spiritual discipline, a key spiritual discipline. And within prayer, there are different aspects of prayer. Perhaps you know the acronym ACTS, right? Expressing adoration to God, praising him for who he is. The C is confession, the T is thanksgiving, and the S is the one we're really good at, all our requests, supplication. But think, but think of those individual components as a spiritual discipline. Confessing sin should be something we are always doing. Just as we're called to always give thanks, always confess sin. I'm not talking about just making stuff up, right? But get into the habit of confessing the smallest of sins to God, the everyday stuff, the little things, so that when bigger things come, you might be ready and conditioned to run to God and lay it before him so you might receive mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We rejoice that you are abounding in steadfast love you are gracious and merciful and with you there's forgiveness for sinners like us and it's there's nothing we can do to earn your favor there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with you you tell us just to come to you with godly sorrow conviction over our sin with a broken heart and a contrite spirit as we saw in the other psalm to come to you with our sin, to hold it up before you, to be honest about it, confess it, and to appeal to you for mercy. And it is your good pleasure to show off your kindness by forgiving us. And Lord Jesus, we, we praise you for coming into this world and laying down your life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners so that the penalty might be paid in full for us so that we might not need to bear the ultimate penalty for our sin, but that we might instead be forgiven and be surrounded by the steadfast love of God, to be clothed with your righteousness. What grace. 
Lord, we ask that, that you would help us to resist the, the temptation to hide our sin. And instead, we, we ask that you would drive us to yourself. That we, with childlike faith, would just come before you and come clean. Knowing that you in your love and in your faithfulness, you are ready to pour out your mercy. You are ready to forgive. We pray that we would not be stubborn and act as one without understanding. Help us to turn from folly and walk in your ways. And, and Lord, we, we, we ask you to help us rest in your grace. We know that you are not, your favor is not upon us because of our performance, our record of obedience. We all fail miserably. Pray that we would not lose sight of the fact that we are standing in grace alone. Apart from your grace, we would perish. Apart from your grace, we would be lost. We rejoice in the salvation you brought to us with the gift of life that we have in your name. And we rejoice in the fact that just as you are faithful to justify us by our faith, to forgive our sins, you will be faithful to bring us to the end, to glory, to be with you forever.